Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. The latest from Gaza as the death toll reaches a new milestone. And my conversation with Dr. Ayelet Levi-Shahar, whose daughter Nama is still being held hostage by Hamas. Then, is Pope Francis becoming more radical as the head of the Catholic Church denounces the war in the Middle East and permits blessings to same-sex couples? I discuss with Reverend James Martin, who knows the Pope well. Then, the voice of a generation. Superstar soprano Renee Fleming joins Michelle Martin and reflects on her career as she is honored at the Kennedy Center. And finally, Christian is serenaded by one of the world's most popular pianists, Lang Lang, on his work and how music can be a bridge in our fractured world. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the program. I'm Bianca Goladriga in New York, sitting in for Christian Amanpour. Well, after frantic negotiations, the United Nations Security Council passed a resolution on the war between Israel and Hamas, calling for, quote, urgent and extended humanitarian pauses in the fighting, as well as unhindered humanitarian access. This just three days before Christmas, as the Holy Land for Christians, Jews and Muslims is being torn asunder under a bloody conflict. Some 20,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. That's according to the Palestinian Health Ministry in Ramallah. Those left alive are dealing with injuries, disease and starvation as the infrastructure to deal with such challenges crumbles around them. According to the World Health Organization, there are no functioning hospitals left in northern Gaza. Here's just some of what Palestinians say they are facing on the ground. There is nowhere safe in the whole of the Gaza Strip. My whole family is gone. We are only four people left out of a family of eight. I was at my aunt's house and we were playing. We saw a big and fast airplane flying over and suddenly it bombed our place and stones fell on me and then people removed me from the rubble. It's just endless tragedy. Meantime, in Israel, many families spent Hanukkah this year mourning the loss of loved ones after the brutal attack on October 7th that left around 1,200 people dead. And just today, there's been another devastating blow. The family of Gadi Hagai announcing that the 73-year-old grandfather has died while in the captivity of Hamas. Earlier this week, I spoke to Dr. Ayelet Levi-Shakar, whose daughter Nama is still held hostage by Hamas. Her violent capture on October 7th was caught on camera by her attackers and released publicly. The footage is upsetting to watch, but Dr. Shakar tells me why she wants the world to see it. My voice may be soft when I speak right now, but the scream is inside me, and, and, um, and I don't hear the voices of the world loud enough responding to the scream. My daughter has been kidnapped by Hamas. Can you, can you even begin to imagine that? It's one of the most recognizable images from the horrors of October 7th. 19-year-old Nama Levy dragged from the back of a jeep at gunpoint by Hamas terrorists. Her pants visibly bloodied, her ankles cut. For her, time is running out. You know, every day is harder because you know, she's more vulnerable to whatever is happening there and to what's inflicted on her. The thought of what else could be inflicted on her daughter has led Dr. Ayelet Levi-Shahar to travel to New York. 
She's hoping to put more pressure on women's rights organizations like UN Women, who waited nearly two months to condemn the sexual violence committed by Hamas, despite the mounting evidence. Do you feel let down by these organizations? Not only their moral lapse in not speaking out, do you think that by waiting so long, they endangered Nama's life even more? It wasn't timely, it wasn't enough, and that did put her, it does put her in more danger because time is passing by and she's not out. And then, you know, I want to just stay home and by the door and by the phone and wait for that call and open the door and go out and get her. You know, that's all I want. I don't want to travel anywhere, but I'm doing it because I think this is, I think the, the United States has the most power here and I want to influence whoever I can. Like many other families of hostages, Levi Shahar is also disappointed in what they view as an ineffective role played by the International Committee for the Red Cross. While acknowledging the organization's principle of impartiality, families believe more aggressive statements, like this one from the ICRC president last week demanding access and the release of hostages, could have put more pressure on Hamas. I've met with the Red Cross and the Red Cross president. I do understand there's a complexity in how they work and how they achieve their mission. They say they don't have the cooperation on the other side by the Hamas, by the, by the ones who kidnapped. So maybe someone can, maybe the, you know, the UN should come out and say ICRC cannot do their assignment. Why do you think they're not doing that? Good question. Why are they not doing that? A day before her trip to New York came the shocking news from the IDF. Its soldiers had mistakenly killed three hostages who had escaped or been abandoned by their captors. You know, I was shocked. The fear that I feel all the time just got worse at that point. And, and when I heard this, it broke my heart. I know the parents of, the, of those, you know, at least some of those hostages that were killed. It's horrible. It's a horrible tragedy. Of course, everyone can recognize the video, the horrific video of Nama on October 7th. I know for you it's really important for that video to be shown. C can you explain why? You know, for me it's of course beyond upsetting and I can't even watch it in continuity. But I think it's so important for the world to see this is what happened to my daughter. It's a short film that is totally un does not represent anything about her, except the cruelty of those moments, the moment where our lives just stopped and froze. And it's been, it's been October 7th ever since. Levi Shahar wants the world to know who her daughter really is, a young, determined, fun-loving girl who sought peace with her Palestinian neighbors and loves Pink, specifically the song, Cover Me in Sunshine. Now I listen to it all the time, and I sing it to her, you know, I say, I, I tell her, the world's been spinning since the beginning and everything will be all right. And I try to believe that myself, you know. Very difficult to watch. Well, this week, Pope Francis spoke out against the conflict in the Middle East, praying for peace and warning that in Gaza, quote, unarmed civilians are the targets of bombings and gunfire. As Christmas approaches, war is not the only area in which the pontiff is making waves. 
This week, the Pope has allowed priests to bless same-sex couples for the first time, something that's been seen as a huge step forward for LGBTQ Catholics. And it's no doubt welcome to my next guest, the Reverend James Martin. He's long supported such outreach and has met frequently with the Pope. Reverend Martin joins us now. Thank you so much for joining us, Reverend Martin. So I want to get to the, the tragedy unfolding and that has been unfolding for, for months now in the Middle East and, and the Pope's role and uh, and his comments about it in just a moment. But first, let's talk about this really um, landmark news and uh, and view from the Pope. The Vatican approved a landmark ruling allowing the Roman Catholic priests to administer blessings to same-sex couples. We should note this caveat, as long as they're not part of a regular church ritual, um, not given in the context to civil unions or weddings. That notwithstanding, this is a significant development. Can you tell us why? Yeah, it's a huge step forward. Uh, it's a way of recognizing uh, that same-sex couples are part of the church. Uh, it's something that has been uh, sort of longed for by a lot of LGBTQ Catholics. Also, their families and their friends. I think we sometimes think, well, the LGBTQ community is a small part of the church, but when you factor in their families and their friends and their coworkers and their fellow parishioners who love them, it's a big part of the church. So it's, a, it's an immense step forward uh, in the church's pastoral outreach to this group. And as I noted, you've had conversations with the Pope uh, about this very topic. I'm not suggesting that, that you, you should take all the credit for it, but I am curious. I know these are private conversations. Can you just give us a summary uh, of some of the things that you discussed with him that helped lead to this um, landmark decision and, uh, and his views and how they've evolved over the past few years? Sure. I'm one of many people that speaks with him about this. Uh, you know, I don't want to uh, break confidence, but we talk about uh, the needs of LGBTQ people and, and their plight in the church. Uh, I sometimes talk about uh, LGBTQ people who are persecuted, you know, in terms of violence. As you know, in 10 countries, it's a, it's a capital offense. You can be executed. Uh, and I think, you know, like anybody, he has been listening to uh, the experiences of LGBTQ people over the last 10 years of his papacy. He's gotten to know them. He's gotten to know people who minister to them. Uh, and I think this is the the, the end result of, of that listening, but also, uh, you know, really understanding the pastoral needs of the people on the ground, right? This is, this is part of his flock, and this is a part of his flock uh, that he wants to welcome uh, and help them feel included in what is, after all, their church, too. Yeah, and perhaps his, his comments and his public statements and support leaning towards this decision have been evolving over the past few years, but it goes beyond just a public statement here or there. It's something that he's been talking about for at least a decade, um, and his what it came across as a very sympathetic view to the arguments that you were making. I'd like to play for our viewers sound from 2013 about how he views gay Catholic priests. If a person is gay and accepts the Lord and has goodwill, who am I to judge? When you even hear him say that in 2013, did you get a sense that that was an opening uh, for getting us to where we are right now? Absolutely. I think his, most five, his five most famous words, who am I to judge? And they have to do, interestingly, uh, the question was about, as you said, gay priests in the Catholic Church. But then the next day was followed up by a journalist who said, well, you only meant gay priests, right? He said, no, I meant anybody who was gay. And then subsequent to that, uh, you had comments about parents not uh, kicking uh, gay people out of the house. 
you know, the the need for the church to welcome gays, meeting with people who minister to them. So it's been a it's been a gradual uh, process for him uh, and progress for the church. Uh, and it's pretty amazing that it's come to this point. I don't think people expected the same sex uh, couple blessing approval uh, to come so quickly. But, you know, he's also someone who's getting older. Uh, there's a new person in charge of Vatican doctrine who's much more open to this. And so all these things came together to produce that document from this week. But as you know, not all um, uh, members of the community there in authority uh, agree with this step. In fact, a couple of bishops' conferences came out against this document and said that it's something that they would not enforce. Did that surprise you? Uh, I was not surprised that there was so much pushback. When I was at the Synod uh, in October, the worldwide meeting of uh, uh, Catholics, uh, cardinals and bishops, there was a lot of pushback to this issue. I think what surprises me is that it comes out in official statements from bishops' conferences, uh, Malawi, Cameroon, a couple other places, and some religious orders. That's pretty unique uh, to come out and basically say, we will not implement a papal directive. So I'm not sure what Pope Francis or the a dicastery for the doctrine of the faith will do about that. That's that's pretty unique. So that that did surprise me. And it's public. Um, it, it's it's literally putting a marker down. H- how should the Vatican respond? Yeah, I don't know that. That's why I'm glad I'm not the Pope. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how they will respond. I don't know how they should respond. I think, uh, you know, maybe uh, speaking to the bishops personally, talking to the bishops conferences, uh, but it is a, a pretty strong reaction. I mean, as you can see, that, uh, you know, really sort of bespeaks uh, the level of uh, suspicion about LGBTQ people in some of these countries, particularly, in my experience, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa and Eastern Europe. That's where that's where the most pushback is coming from. I think the way to uh, sort of help uh, bishops and other people on the ground uh, with this issue is to help them get to know LGBTQ Catholics. I mean, that's really what uh, changes hearts and minds. It's not arguments or debates. It's encounter. It's really listening to their stories uh, and listening to who they are and and their experiences of God in the church. Listen, this is a delicate line for the Pope to walk here. And obviously it comes after his predecessor has already passed away um, and and him not wanting to do anything too earth shattering. But at the same time, he has been outspoken when it comes to addressing and actually taking action against some of his more conservative critics. Uh, Two cardinals come to mind, Cardinal Raymond Burke. He's seen as a leader of opposition. Uh, He's going to lose some of his privileges, including the subsidy of nearly a 5,000 square foot apartment. Last month, the Pope also removed from his leadership post a bishop in Texas. Talk about the the decision and, and the thought process that goes on before the Pope makes such, you know, pretty stunning moves. Yeah, those were pretty dramatic moves. I think one thing to point out to viewers and listeners uh, is that he has been very patient about this. Uh, uh, both of those, both Cardinal Burke and, and Bishop Strickland, have been outspoken critics of the Pope for years. Uh, and I think I think this is accurate. Under John Paul and under Benedict, I don't think that kind of stuff would have been tolerated for more than a couple of months. So I think the Pope was sort of reaching the end of his tether uh, and, uh, you know, made the decisions that he took. Uh, he is, you know, I think one of the things we also have to remember is that, you know, when cardinals and archbishops and bishops are, are named and appointed, they do take an oath of obedience to him, right? And so this... So sort of public dissent from someone that you promised to support, um, you know, is really not not something that can be ignored for a long time. 
Let me turn now to the Israel-Gaza war, um, Israel-Hamas war in Gaza. This will be a Christmas like no other the past several years. Um, there will be no festivities in Bethlehem this year. Uh, we have seen the, the Pope speak out uh, about the fighting, the humanitarian crisis, obviously the October 7th uh, horrific terrorist attack as well. He's met with families of loved ones um, on both sides, uh, Palestinians and Israeli, and he condemned uh, the shooting of two women in a Gazan church recently, uh, Gazans have accused IDF snipers. Uh, the IDF uh, denied those accusations. But over the weekend, the Pope said, quote, some say this is terrorism. This is war. Yes, it is war. It is terrorism. Uh, what do you make uh, of how he's handled his public role in trying to bring this war to an end? I think he's handled it very well. I mean, he quotes uh, constantly, which I think is probably the most succinct uh, a summary of this from St. John Paul II, war is always a defeat for humanity. Uh, and so he has been very strong about the need for a ceasefire, the need for peace. Uh, and I think, you know, on the ground, what the Vatican tries to do is work with uh, local cardinals and archbishops and priests and nuns and uh, brothers and lay people to, to uh, sort of provide assistance, but also to get a sense of what's going on on the ground. So I think he's he's done a very good job. He, his role is as peacemaker, uh, not as politician. And I think he, some people might feel that he's not said enough, but he's not a politician. He's trying to be really a peacemaker. And for you and others, leaders of faith, whether it's in the Catholic Church or, or any religion. I mean, this is really a, a emotional time, an important time for families as they gather at the end of the year to celebrate whatever holidays they do and as they ring in a, a new year. Talk about the type of sermon that, that you would deliver and message that, that you think is an important one to send now to families all over yeah. the world who are watching things unfold and and really feel, you know, desperate about the global situation now and, and you know, what 2024 may look like. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of despair. Uh, there's despair over what's going on in Israel, uh, in Ukraine. I mean, in a sense, the polarization in the United States. I think one of the most important messages of, uh, of the Christmas season uh, is that nothing is impossible with God. I mean, God Christian believes that uh, God became human in Jesus, um, and that uh, this is something that obviously never happened before and never has happened since. Uh, but when we look at despair and we look at hopelessness, that is really not coming from God. What's coming from God is is the dire desire for a new future, the desire to hope, the desire to keep on going. That's also the message of the resurrection, right? When the disciples thought that nothing good could happen after Good Friday, so consistently. Uh, nothing is impossible with God, and also fear not, which is what the angels say to uh, uh, the shepherds uh, at the nativity, yeah. and also what the angels say at the resurrection. So fear not and keep hoping. Reverend James Martin, thank you so much for your time. Merry Christmas to you, and uh, Happy New Year. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. 
And now to the prize of a lifetime, even for the most star-studded of performers. World-renowned opera star Renee Fleming was awarded the prestigious 2023 Kennedy Center Honor, alongside Billy Crystal, Barry Gibb, Queen Latifah, and Dionne Warwick. The Grammy Award-winning singer talks to Michelle Martin about that meaningful moment, her illustrious career, and her surprising love of science. Thanks, Bianna. Renee Fleming, thank you so much for talking with us. Wonderful to be here, Michelle. Thank you. So you performed for the Queen of England. You were President Obama's singer of choice for his first inaugural ceremony. You received countless awards, the National Medal of Honor, a Fulbright Lifetime Achievement Award. So now here comes this Kennedy Center Honors. And you can be honest, but I mean, is it is it just like one more day or what, what does something like that mean at this stage of your life? Well, it, it's really incredible for me because I've had such a long relationship with the Kennedy Center, um, participating in five of the honors, um, attending many more because I'm an advisor to them. And so it's it's the biggest deal. It is incredible. And frankly, all of us, we I spent two days with the other honorees. We were just all shaking our heads in wonder because there's nothing there's nothing higher in the U.S. that's public. This mm -hmm. is the one award that is the most meaningful to anybody who's been in the performing arts or entertainment. So I, I, I'm still pinching myself and it was, a, it was so exhilarating. Can you explain for somebody who's not in the performing arts why something like that is meaningful? Well, it is, first of all, the Kennedy Center is our national center for the performing arts. So it's a national award. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an award that that brings us together with the president, with, uh, with you know, it's, it's it, there's nothing like it. There's no other thing mm -hmm. like it. And frankly, in the United States, we haven't really been, I would say, celebrating the, certainly the performing arts uh, as much as we used to. And so this is it. This is really the pinnacle as far as being recognized goes. And and Dionne Warwick said it's so great after all these years of giving, mm -hmm. we finally get recognition. And so it's, it's and I wouldn't say finally, because I've received more than my share uh, of awards, mm -hmm. as you said, it's, but it's, it, this, there's nothing better than this. One of the things I noticed that I was wondering, and people will see this when the, when the, the honors are, are aired, is that some of your signature pieces were performed not by your contemporaries, but by young artists uh, uh, and of color. And I, I was wondering if, if you had a hand in that and eat, whether you did or didn't, how did that feel? Well, I put forth, you know, lists. I think this is part of, of everyone's uh, segment is that you sort of say, here's who I know, who's here I love, who, this is who I love. This is who I would love to participate in my segment. And I, I gave them a list of my favorite young sopranos and thinking maybe one would be available. And so when I walked out and saw that they were all there, I just about fainted with joy. Uh, and these are, are women that I've celebrated that I, you know, anytime they call me, they want advice. I'm there for them. Um, and there are more. There are definitely more people, but it's uh, it's a joy to give back in that way. And that's frankly a tradition that belongs to the classical arts for years. I benefited from Leontine Price being a friend, advising me, um, and many other singers as well. So it's it's um, and I'm a nurturing person. You know, if you have children and do what I do, you do it because you need to and you want to and you want to really love. Um, these younger people. So that that also applies to younger artists. 
I love the tribute, frankly, and having Dove Cameron representing um, uh, Light in the Piazza, which was an incredible, joyful experience for me, and Titus Burgess and Susan Graham, who is a colleague. We've probably sung together more than anyone else. And Christine Bransky, a friend, Sigourney Weaver. I mean, it was, the segment was just, I thought it was absolutely perfect. Hmm. So what, so there are a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about. One is I, I wanted to talk to you about how you've shaped your career. You've performed more than 60 roles. How did you decide? Do you remember, can you just offer some insight about it? How did you decide what roles you wanted to tackle? Well, first of all, you can't have success in our world if you're not successful on the opera stage. So that's that's the key. That is really the focus in the early years of a career. And frankly, for many people, it's their whole focus for their entire careers. But for me, choosing repertoire in the beginning, it's you, you do what you're offered and you try to make it work because, hey, you've got a job. And then once you're really successful or, or, you know, a budding success, you can be a little more uh, kind of particular about what it is you'd like to perform. You have to be quite in demand to make those choices. And then when you really make it to the top, you're you're overwhelmed. You're overwhelmed with people requesting for you to do things, be places, collaborate, et cetera. And that's when Leontine Price helped me because she really help me under gave, gave me clarity on how to make those choices so it's um uh, and you have a team of people around kind of protecting you from bad reviews protecting you protecting you from um doing too much etc so it's it, it becomes daunting but it's all it's all from a position of of plentitude which is um i wish that everyone has that because that's that's the miracle of it is that suddenly you realize i i'm i'm living my dream but one of the other things that does sort of stand out about your career is that many of the famous divas that we know did not have did not have kids. And you did and you chose to. And, you know, that, I, you know, I, I just look, I know people in the pop world who are basically told not to have kids because they wouldn't be sexy. And I just wondered if that was ever said to you. And how did you obviously you didn't listen but I'm curious about how you navigated well, that. Honestly, Michelle, it wasn't said to me, but I know singers from the previous generation who had simply on their own realized that they couldn't do it. Um, you have to have a certain type of support, obviously, or have the financial ability to travel with a, a, a babysitter. So you're not worried in every territory and every night, who's the stranger who's with my children? while I'm performing. So, um, and I, I, you know, I, I had this kind of drive and I'm going to make it work and I'm going to pack everything that we need in our four suitcases and not bring more. And, um, and the, you know, my daughters actually, I learned something, which is that you are what they need when they're mm. small, you, you, um, maybe a few, you know, beloved toys. They're so adaptable and so resilient children that they will make they'll make they're happy as long as they're with you and they're having a good time so i tried to make sure that was the case one of the things that people know you for is how you started to roam around across genres i mean i know you've talked about this a million times that you actually started out in jazz and at some point you know moved to opera but then when you had this robust opera career and then you started to kind of move into other genre again how did you know it was time and how did you do it 
Well, one of the things that happened was my discography was pretty full. I had already recorded uh, the standard repertoire, my standard repertoire, at least, in a number of recordings. And so I just started thinking, well, I'm not going to repeat any of that. So let me branch out. Now, I did have to push back on a lot of people who said, absolutely not. You should not branch out. You know, you it'll ruin your career. I did get that for, for doing other genre. And I ignored it and just thought it's my life. And if I, you know, if it hurts me, it hurts my legacy, so be it. I want to enjoy what I'm doing. So, I mean, you've performed on Broadway. You put out a rock cover album and a jazz album. You performed a jazz song on the soundtrack to the 2017 Oscar-winning film, The Shape of Water. But how does it happen? Do you like, you're just like walking down the street and you think, you know what I would really like to do? Or like, how does that, how does it work? Well, the, certainly the, the the recordings are my decision, but but many of them come to me, you know. So Peter Mensch of Q Prime said, you know, we, we want to do this album with you, similar to what uh, Bette Midler had done. Um, uh, and so, you know, and so that was kind of really out there for me to look at indie rock music and make choices about some of the music that I wanted to record. But it was a fascinating experience. And um, certainly jazz and music theater, uh, starting in Carousel, you can't go after these things. They have you have to be offered them, and so those were fascinating. I mean, doing the play on Broadway, as short-lived as it was, was more fun. Um, so, and then even Lord of the Rings, I think, was probably the most uh, famous of the soundtracks. And my daughter said to me recently, she said, "Mom, why aren't you singing this? You're the voice of Gollum in the end of the third film, and you never sing it." And people would come just to hear it live. And I said, "Oh." I, I hadn't thought of that. So I've started to kind of, I've started performing it. But so, but some young singers say, so how did you get in, get these films? I said, well, this is not something you can pursue unless you find a way to meet a director um, uh, or a music editor or something like that. And, and, and they just, you get asked and it's, it's really fantastic. One of the things that you have very much surfaced is the role of kind of the arts and, and mental health. And, you know, there's so many things that used to have a stigma around them, still in some ways do have a stigma around them, but that you have been kind of working to both understand, to alleviate, and to sort of champion. And I just wonder, how, how did that all start? Well, the arts and health intersection um, I, became interesting to me because I had my own issues. I had, I had somatic pain over the years. Uh, as a distraction from performance pressure. I'm not a natural performer. I had to really, I had to really steal myself. Um, I had stage fright. And, and um, so, so that, be, uh, that sort of is, is how I became interested in it. But then uh, when I, when I met Francis Collins, who was the director of the National Institutes of Health for the last 12 years, um, and said, hey, I'm at the Kennedy Center now, can we provide a platform for arts and health? I think we could, I think we could, our audience would love to know the science behind what it means to be listening to music or feeling emotion around the arts. And so we've been doing this for five years now. But uh, for mental health, I mean, you know, Vivek Murthy, our, our Surgeon General, Dr. Murthy, has actually done uh, in, a, in a recent uh, study, you know, kind of a, a release stated that, I mean, it's music can actually create endorphins that are very healing around depression that alleviates 
um, the depression that we feel. And, you know, it's a similar to going out into nature, to to creating something artistic using your hands. I mean, it's worked. It's done wonders for veterans, um, for for people. We're not, we're not going to we're going to have a lot of anxiety and depression around climate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there, there are there are so many different ways. There, there aren't enough uh, minutes to tell you how many ways that this can be helpful. Is there anything you worry about, particularly when it comes to your first love, which is opera? I do. I do worry. Uh, do you worry that opera is kind of losing its place, its footing? I'm worried because it's the most expensive of the classical art forms. It, it You have, you know, people, hundreds of people working Mm -hmm. on a given night to make a large opera production come off Um, the chorus the singers uh soloists and the orchestra and everyone backstage the costumes the sets it's very expensive and if you don't have philanthropic support for it and if you're not selling out every ticket and some of these houses are actually really too big now from when they were built four thousand seats three thousand seats Mm -hmm. was appropriate, but it's not now that there are performing arts venues on every other block in New York City. They're everywhere. So um, there there are a lot of challenges, I would say. There's a diehard audience and there are young people coming in droves. I mean, the hours that we premiered last year at the Met, um, a huge percentage of attendees were in the Opera House for the first time because they wanted to see this title. Yeah, tell me about that. I mean, you talked to my colleague, Christiane Amanpour, about that last year when it premiered. Yeah. Um, the hours, you know, it was based on, I guess the original source material was Virginia Woolf's kind of Mrs. Dalloway. Understanding from looking at the um, the data is that something like forty percent of the audience had never gone to an opera before. Why? Yeah. Why do you think they? What? What do you think was attractive to them? Uh, it had to be the title. I mean, it could be there were three uh, leading sopranos and then in, in the uh, three main roles. I mean, Kelly O'Hara comes from Broadway, so we're mixing genre mm-hmm. again. Um, but it's uh, but I think it's enough people knew they also probably knew that there were there was subject matter in this piece, whether LGBTQ issues, um, suicide, uh, certainly mental health. Uh, you know, there were relevant subjects in the operas. And I this is why I keep saying we need more new work that speaks to issues that we're concerned about right now. Um, we can be moved by it. We can be excited by it. But it has it really should be more more about what it is we care about, you know, so it's happening. There's so much new work. And for instance, Terrence Blanchard has brought two extraordinary pieces to the Met. Fire Shut Up in My Bones, Champion. Um, Malcolm X was just very successful. Um, L.A. Opera has a, a piece on Frida Kahlo that's completely sold out. And Rhiannon Giddens wrote a gorgeous piece that won a Pulitzer Prize for called Omer. So so people are. People who aren't typically in the opera world are creating works that people want to see. And I understand that the hours were so successful that if the Met's bringing it back again next right. year. So, yes. which, which I, I, my understanding is almost never happens. Is that not this quickly? The turnaround for that company is four years. I mean, it's a long time. So uh, I don't know how Peter Gelb did it. He moved heaven and earth to make sure that we could all and and we're all doing it. The same cast. 
So yeah, that's that's quite a Herculean feat, but, but I'm glad it's coming back. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of audience we get this time around. So you're doing the hours again, you're reprising that role. What, what's next? Yeah, I'm working with National Geographic and I, um, I won a Grammy this past year for Voice of Nature, the Anthropocene. It was, a, it was a pandemic project because nature saved me for that year and a half I was out of work. So um, I said, I want to tour this piece, but I want to tour it with media. And it's a stunning 30 minute film um, that I performed to. And so I can do it with piano or orchestra. And I think I'm going to bring this to many, many cities in the next year and a half. And it's really about um, it's it's largely about loving the planet and finding ways to protect it. And we share their initiatives. Um, and we encourage audience members and we're not beating them over the head with the bad news that we see every day. But it's in there. It's in there because that's the Anthropocene part. It's what we've done to the planet. Before we let you go, do you have any just, like, you know, the off chance that perhaps some up and coming artists are listening to our conversation? Do you have some some advice for them? Well, I just announced actually with Johns Hopkins and the Aspen Institute grants for collaborations between artists and young scientists. Mm. And it's a really fabulous opportunity for those of you interested in combining this, these creative minds. Science is, is creative in very, a very similar way to art and artists. Um, we all are having a, a hypothesis. We're, we're thinking about what we want to say to the audience, what we want to do and create and, and make, and we can do it together. So that's one exciting thing. But for young performers I, and artists in general, I, I would just say we've never needed you more than we need you now. Renee Fleming, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, Michelle. What an incredible voice. What an incredible career she has. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And finally, as the year draws to a close, we're continuing our musical theme with a look back at one of our favorite conversations. In 2019, Chinese pianist Lang Lang joined Christian at London's Royal College of Music to discuss his latest record and to give a personal recital. It's amazing. Lang Lang, welcome to the program. Such a pleasure. Christian. It's really great to see you in London. I just wondered, is, is this what you're here to promote here? Is this your new project? Yes, it's the piano book. But it's actually a recording with a book together. <laughs> and what does that mean, a, a book? Yeah, so uh, for me, I would like to share some of my music, uh, which I played as a children. I mean, like uh, for Elise or uh, the Mama Relation, the Twinkle Twinkle, uh, because those are the first love for me in music, and I want to record those pieces for the next generation. Can you give me a little tinkle oh, of Four Elise and Twinkle Twinkle? Yeah, so I will do Four Elise first. Yeah. Yeah.
Uh, it's beautiful. I mean, it's obviously for many, many young people, they would recognize that as yes. perhaps the first, yes. the first piece they would learn. Absolutely. Yeah. How difficult was it for you to learn, especially, I mean, in China, was it obvious that you were going to learn European music? Yes, I mean, as a, uh, as a beginner, uh, most of the piece, uh, I would say, I would say 80% are Western classical music. And there's another uh, a smaller percent that we're doing some kind of arrangement from the Chinese folk music into the piano. Um, some uh, interesting, uh, okay, sure. Just a little Chinese yeah. folk music. Yeah. is kind of like a little happy cowboy song. <laughs> but I mean, did you grow up listening to music in your household? What was it like growing up? Yes, so I had a, a very, very musical environment because my father uh, plays in traditional instrument uh, with his orchestra. I mean, not his orchestra, but he is in the orchestra. And then so he had uh, many colleagues. Uh, so. Uh, we, we all, and both of my parents and me, we all live in the same dormitory as the other musicians. And they all play different type of music and all their children are into the piano playing. So uh, it, was, you know. it, it was considered something that you would have to do, you'd be expected to follow your parents in the musical. It's actually quite, quite natural because everyone somehow has a piano in their home uh, and uh, everyone just kind of start to try to be who's number one in the morning, like waking up to start, you know, push the keys. <laughs> How much practice did you have? I mean, you were young, you were, you were a little boy, and I think you had to do a huge amount of practice before breakfast sure, even, sure, before going to sure. school and when you came back from school. Yeah, I always had the joke, I'm like, yeah, it depends on how old you are. If you're five, practice five hours. If you're six, six hours. I mean, I mean just, I know, when I say that, everyone was like, are you crazy? What about you now? I mean, 36, how many hours yeah. you practice? Um, I did practice at least like uh, five to six hours du during the school days, and then off school days, then eight hours a day. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you actually did get injured uh, last year, right? Mm, you spent yes. a lot of time mm. recovering from yes, your injury. Yes. I mean, was it because you overplayed and overpracticed? I mean, how did you get an injury? How does a pianist get an injury? Yeah, it's, it's I would say overuse, overuse. And also I was practicing a you know, left hand piece uh, and I did not know the position. So, you know, it's kind of, somehow, you know, the, it's inflamed after, yeah. So you've got a tendonitis? Yes. What are your favorite pieces to play? Do you um, have a favorite, for instance, when you're on stage? Sure, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, really, I mean, it depends on the moment. Uh, and I would say, you know, um, now my favorite piece is, uh, uh, because the next year I'm gonna do the Goldberg variation by Bach. So, uh, so my favorite is this incredible, the world most incredible melody, I think. But of course, if I'm a little bit depressed, then I would like to play like Rachmaninoff. Like. 
it's like singing, you know. It's... Get out uh, from the struggling. So, so it depends on the mood. Well, I mean, I, I can feel it. <laughs> yeah. I really can. But it, it, I can just see in this in this instance here what everybody knows about you. And that is not only are you a great talent, but you're also a great showman. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You're a great actor. You feel. You're dramatic. A lot of people love that. And some people don't. There's some critics who say, you know, he's too much of a showman. What is your answer to them? Uh, you know, people can say whatever they want. Uh, but I, for me, the priority is to be great musician first. And then if I establish that first, then um, to be uh, on the side, a showman is not so bad. <laughs> and there have been in the past, right? I mean, yeah. th there's some, what, 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 do you have mentors? Do you have pianists who you look up to as it's sort of sure. in your I style? Mean, there, um, I mean, obviously uh, from the great musicians I love, like uh, Vladimir Horowitz, uh, mm -hmm. Arthur Rubinstein. There's also people who not just play the piano, but who also inspire me, like Leonard Bernstein, mm -hmm. uh, like Pavarotti. Uh, All very dramatic, larger-than-life yes. musical talents. Yeah, and I also like the, the musicians who not only influence the people in our classical music world, but also to the bigger uh, uh, public. Uh, well, I was going to ask you about that because you know, you obviously had it growing up, and many people, if they're lucky enough, mm. have music lessons when they're, when they're young. And yet, certainly in the West, schools are cutting back on music and arts. What, what, what do you think about that? I mean, how important do you think it is for kids to, to actually know music, even if they're not going to be a musician? Right. I believe, you know, music changed my life, and uh, I believe music has the most powerful uh, magic to change everyone's life and this is something we must bring music back to those schools which get cut in uh, uh, the budget mm -hmm. and, and this is what you know we've been doing for the last 10 years with my foundation with many of my friends we're trying to bring music back to the schools and now we we have a around the globe we have a, almost a hundred schools uh, which uh, worked with us uh, and we uh, sponsor uh, their software, hardware, and training the teachers. So, so I think this is something that we try to uh, continue to, uh, to build. Uh, uh, it, and you said it changed your life. I, is there something spiritual also that you get from it? Something, mm -hmm. I don't know, is there something spiritual? Yeah, sure. So I would say, you know, musically, because when you touch the pianos, I mean, I mean the keys, this is not just one note, right? It's, it's need to work as a team. And then when you learn a piece, that's the best way of teaching you how to be creative, how to you know be as a team player, and how to open your heart. It's it's a a real uh, community. You know, the, I think piano is a community, and once you know about those, you know, communities, then it's easier for you to build the bridge between different cultures. You've played for the the president of your own country and many other leaders, and and all over the place. Do you think music can be used to build bridges, music as diplomacy? Uh, absolutely. I, I believe that because in music there's so many wonderful contents, you know, with uh, uh, music from all, all over the world, you know. Uh, and uh, I always felt that 
is the best way to open people's heart and to build the bridge or you know to build something which will solve some kind of a misunderstanding between culture because in the end you play a song that everybody understand everybody having a good time so uh, I, I do believe in that what was it like when you were growing up, I mean, you 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 said you lived in dormitories, yes. with your, and also apartments. And at one point, I think you were separated from your mother or your father, and you went from where you were living to Beijing. Yes. yes. What was it like? What were the the conditions like for you? Mm. So in my home city, uh, Shenyang, I I had actually pretty nice time, even though. My my uh, my father pushed me pretty hard, but still, you know, uh, the condition was okay. But then we moved to Beijing because we thought the the Central Conservatory is the best school in China. We wanted to be there to you know to have a, a better study. The uh, Central Conservatory, yeah, yes, which was in Beijing. Beijing yes, yeah. but then of course everything you know the living standard went down. My mom had to work by herself, and then my father quit his job. Uh, um, and uh, we were really kind of uh, <laughs> short of money. And then so we rented a place like $10 per month, that type of uh, 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 place. Um, and uh, So it wasn't the nicest place. No, no, no. And also, you know, when I play those pieces every day, my neighbor really hate me, you know. <laughs> but like... <laughs> so they just wanted to shut you oh up. Oh my God! They they, they want to kill me. You know, it's like you are so horrible. Where you come from? Why you do this torturing thing for us? <laughs> do they happen to know who you became? I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> they all became great friends. You know, they even uh, gave me their home to stay because later my also some of my like my cousins came. So we we, we did not have enough room and said, okay, come to to us. So they actually. But, and you talked though. I mean, you said you know your father was quite pushy, but I mean he was very hard on you, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean very hard, and you had a teacher who you I think you called teacher angry, Mrs. Angry or something. Yeah. I had what a, was going on? So when I when we came to Beijing uh, at age of nine, we thought. Uh, there's a professor really great and we like to study with her but then then I realized you know she's like a super angry so that's why I call her professor angry so every time I play something I like you know if I play and then and then she's like you play like you you work at a potato field or if I play you know and then she's like you know it's like you're drinking water. I need some sparkling water, and I I, I need uh, some Coca-Cola. I mean, she must be a big fan of Coca-Cola. And then and then I was like, okay, so so how 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 should I get that? And then she said, you need to find out yourself. I don't know. And so, so after six months, uh, she fired me. She said, you're really you don't listen. You don't get what I'm talking about. Uh, you're you're not talented. Get out of my class. So I got fired by her. Yeah. And, and what mm. does she say about you now? Have you ever got uh, back yeah, to see her? Yeah, she's still, you know, the, the professor there. But I know I'm, I, I, you know, I. Is I, she I, proud of you now? Uh, I don't know, but but I, I forgive her. <laughs> you know, that, that's for sure. So what do you want? What do you want to pass on to these youngsters who you're you're teaching and with your academies? Mm -hmm. I I would really love to share the passion for them because you know classical music is a very serious uh, kind of form of art and sometimes after eight hours of practicing, 
you know, we all kind of lose our interest uh, or kind of, you know, getting a bit bored. So, um, so whether you're studying in the schools or in the conservatories, you know, sometimes we get a little bit kind of so into our own world and not open enough for other things. So every time when I go, I go somewhere to teach, I try to kind of explain some kind of life a time story, you know, I try to give them the characters that they can work with. So music is not just music note, but it's, it's stories behind, it's characters behind, it's a movie behind. Uh, and uh, it's the same thing um, to the uh, public schools, it's the same thing, you know, when they hear music, I want to give them a more vertical uh, dimensions. What piece inspired you? I mean, I read that it was yeah. Jim and Jerry, I was uh, yeah, I was actually very little, and then that time my favorite, uh, I mean my favorite cartoon was uh, uh, Tom and Jerry, and they were <laughs> the, the, the incredible like playing. <laughs> and then, <laughs> I mean it's brilliant. And then actually later I, I found out actually Bugs Bunny also did the same piece in the same year. Bugs Bunny? Yeah, but I did not know Bugs Bunny so well at that time. I only know Tom and Jerry, but later I compared, you know, Bugs Bunny also played this piece with his year. With yeah. his year? Yeah, so I think that was a, like kind of a, like little rivalry between the two uh, cartoons. But I mean, it's weird to think that cartoons would use classical music to tell their stories. But back then, it was the regular case yeah. because if you listen to the old Disney uh, cartoons, Mickey Mouse, you know, this is either classical music or like jazz, you know, you, you, you hear a lot of uh, classical jazz music. But there. those are two of the highest forms of music. Yeah, I mean, I, I love jazz. I mean, I'm a big fan. But of course, I, I like others too. I mean, I think, you know, uh, hip hop is cool. Uh, EDM is, is quite... Do you do any hip hop? Um, I, I work with uh, a few wonderful musicians uh, like Pharrell Venom mm. uh, and, uh, um, and um, there are some uh, musicians we are always talking to and to see whether there's some new uh, like kind of a new way of uh, doing some new hip hop things. I mean, who knows in the future? <laughs> Not much is known about your personal life. Are you married? Not yet. Are you going to no. get married? This is uh, going to be, uh, uh, this is, I mean, um, it's a, still a secret. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a lucky person waiting in the wings? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, uh, uh, soon we'll find out. Really? Yeah. Well, we'll leave it on that, uh, right. on that secretive mm -hmm. note. A little surprise would be nice, right? <laughs> <laughs> Lang Lang, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Would thank you like you. to play us out sure, with of course. something? Of course. Uh, maybe I would like to play a, a, a song from a movie, the Emily Waltz. Okay. Yeah.
That is beautiful. For you. Thank yeah. you. I feel like we've had our own personal concert. And it was just a joy for us to watch. What an incredible performer. Well, that is it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. Thank you so much for watching, and goodbye from New York. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.